All through the series, The Gift of Hope, we're going to be asking various people in different parts of our region, what are they hoping for for Christmas? So we've got our first video. This was actually shot at the University of Waterloo. Let's take a look. What are you hoping for this Christmas? To spend time with friends and family. So just enjoying the holiday and going out to and just going to the Niagara and enjoying the fun. Getting to see family and friends. I hope they have a good year. Um, I'm hoping for a good time with my family and my friends and relatives. This Christmas I'm hoping to spend a greater portion of my time with family and friends instead of worrying about school and things like that. So I've always wondered, um, asked myself what um, Christmas is for and why I should celebrate it. So I think this Christmas, since um, my parents will be on vacation, I will take some time to really reflect and answer that question for myself. So I'm really excited about that because it will be nice to sit down with a couple of hot whatever I find in my house and just think about it and reflect on it and journal about it. Uh, I'm hoping to go back home and see my family. I'm just hoping I get back to my family safe and sound. I think I'm hoping for some time to spend with my friends and family to kind of decompress from school because it's been a very uh, stressful term so I'm looking forward to having some time to just take care of myself and spend time with the people I love and kind of um, reframe things in a more positive way after such a stressful term. I'm not sure. I don't have a lot of hopes in terms of what I want for Christmas. It's just like it's already there for me. So there's no like specific expectation that I have from others, I guess. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, this isn't exactly how I pictured this would go down today. It's been kind of a, a stressful, chaotic morning, and you can imagine if you've ever been charged of an event where you're trying to reach a lot of people that you can't simply call them all at once or email them all at once. It's, it's kind of tricky because not everybody has everything. So trying to make a decision about to run or to not to run, uh, it's been a little stressful this morning. But at the end of it, having gone through what we've gone through together already this morning, I think we made the right choice, right? And God's moving, and that's, that's pretty special. And so if you're at home watching us today, uh, this might be the first time that you watched our live stream. Uh, and so hopefully everything is working the way it should. And uh, we're just glad that you're with us. So if you're sitting there still in your house coat and you're having a coffee, well then, have one for me. <laughs> and uh, remember to stay engaged as we go through this. So it's finally here. The calendar has flipped and now it's officially December. And maybe you're like me. And the first day of December means that you can now legally start to listen to Christmas music. Now you can legally put up your Christmas tree, you can turn on your Christmas lights, and start the countdown to the big day. Or, maybe you're like the Hallmark Channel on TV, and you've already been celebrating and looking forward to Christmas literally since the end of October, with every sort of Christmas romance you can imagine, and now you're just finally glad the rest of us, me, have caught up. I can tell you that we have both views represented in our household, in our family. So the beginning of December means that we are all finally on the same page. And that is a good thing. Regardless, the first week of December, the first week of Advent, means that we are into a season of looking forward, of anticipating, of celebrating the miraculous plan of Jesus coming to earth 
as a man. And we've already talked about it in various ways this morning. The Christmas season is upon us. So we ask the question, what are you hoping for this Christmas? You just heard from some university students as they described what they're hoping for. So what did we hear? We heard about time with family. We heard time to celebrate with friends. Decompress after a busy term. Maybe give a special gift or two. Or have a special moment that makes the season memorable and special. I like that one that actually talked about trying to figure out what it all means. That was a really honest opinion. Now maybe it's the same for you this Christmas. Maybe you're excited about the chance to get together with family members, to revive your traditions, to give gifts, to be generous to the people around you. But have you ever had a time in your life when you hoped for something so desperately for Christmas? Maybe you dropped hints. Maybe you were a child. And maybe you dropped hints to everyone that would listen. You put it on your Christmas list. You made sure it was on a prominent spot on the fridge so everyone could see it. You even circled the ad in the Sears wish book. And you folded the page corner over to make sure that people flipping through would find it and your parents would be sure to see it. Now, wait a minute. This is one of those moments I have in teaching all the time where you realize that if you're under 30, 40, if you're under 30 or 40, you may not even know what a wish book is. Okay, so a wish book, it's this thing they call the catalog. And the catalog was like this printed booklet, and the way the booklet worked, that it had all the products offered by the store in one place, and you could flip through it. And then what you would do is you pick up this thing called a phone, and you would call them, and you would order it through an operator, and then you would wait six to eight weeks, maybe, for it to show up as promised. It wasn't like Amazon Prime at that point, it's totally different, uh, but you certainly got a, a chance to build your anticipation. You get what I mean, though. As kids, we would agonize over the one gift that we hoped we would receive on that Christmas morning. We'd wait, and we would hope. We would wait, and we would hope, hint, and hope again. Sometimes it worked out, and you got exactly what you wanted. Your hope paid off, but sometimes it did not. And there would be that painful moment when you had to pretend you were excited about the gift that was okay. I mean, who doesn't want to receive a six-pack of black dress socks? But honestly, it wasn't really what you wanted at all, and your hope was dashed. For some of you this morning, as you think about the upcoming Christmas season, life feels a little bit like that. You had something in mind that you thought you were going to receive in life, and you're sitting here today, and it hasn't turned out that way. You were hoping for one thing, but you got another. You had hope, but now there's disappointment, maybe disillusionment, and maybe you're wondering if somehow... God sent it to the wrong address, that somehow he messed up. Maybe he never really knew what you wanted at all. Maybe this has been a year with disappointment, with heartbreak or setbacks. You've lost a job. Maybe you're dealing with a relationship that's broken down or come apart. You're struggling in school. You're not sure if you're going to get your credit. You've got a sick relative, or maybe you've even lost a loved one, and right now you're looking at December, and all you're doing is just praying, praying for a way to make it through the holidays. There's no joy, there's no anticipation when you look for it, and instead, there's despair and no real hope. That's the reality for some of us. That's the reality for some of you watching today on the live stream. Maybe you're watching today, or maybe you're here today, and you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian, but regardless, you are here today, and for you, the Christmas season is still a hard one. 
a time that you just don't get, just like the students that we saw. You don't understand what's going on, and there's stress and busyness. And your despair or your disappointment is just as real. The bottom line is that as we look forward to Christmas and head into our new series, The Gift of Hope, it's pretty clear that whether you're excited about the holidays or you're dreading them, the point remains. Everyone needs hope. Everyone needs hope. It is so important. Hope is the belief or desire that there's going to be a positive outcome in your life or your experience. For the Christian, hope is rooted in the belief that there's a God who loves you and can be trusted to be faithful to his promises. Hope propels us forward. Hope assures us that our efforts aren't futile, that they're not pointless. Hope keeps us going when circumstances look grim. So there's the problem. When we lose hope, we're in trouble. Everyone needs hope. I want to take us to a part of the Bible today that you probably would not anticipate as you think about the beginning of a Christmas series. You probably think Matthew or Mark, Luke or John, and that would make sense. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to take you to a story that predates Mary and Joseph. It predates the wise men. It predates no room at the inn. And yet, in this story, we're going to see a glimmer of the hope that God was not only creating for one family, but we'll see how in restoring hope for this one family, God restored hope for every family, for all of humanity. We're going to turn to a little book of the Bible in the first half, the Old Testament, And it's called the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth. The book is set during the time of the judges in Israel. So if you know anything about the kings of Israel, this is before all of that. This was a really tough time. Before Israel had a king and when the nation was subject to frequent raids and wars with foreign powers. There were times of faithfulness and then there were times of unfaithfulness to God. They would fall into the lure of exotic idols and other gods and then suddenly there would be political instability. It was a difficult time in Israel's history. And it's almost 1,100 years before the birth of Jesus. This is a long time before that. Now into the situation, the book of Ruth introduces us to a family led by a man named, you ready for this? It's a difficult one. Elimelech. Elimelech. It took me a long time to get that right. Elimelech. And Elimelech was married to a woman whose name was Naomi. And they had two sons, Malin and Killian. Malin and Killian. And they were from a small town in Judah. Now we don't know a whole lot about the family except the story tells us there was a huge famine in Judah. And that Elimelech decided to take his family out of Judah and into the foreign land of Moab. Again, if you've been in Sunday school for any length of time, you've heard that Moab before. It's not a good place for Israel. Okay? Often at war with them, definitely hostile. But Elimelech decided to take his family in search of a better life. And while they were there, Elimelech dies. Now we don't know how or why he died, but when he died, he left Naomi as a widow, alone, in a foreign land with only her two sons. This is not, was not the plan. This is not what they anticipated. They stayed in Moab, the boys grew up, and they married Moabite women, people from the region. Their names were, get this, Orpah was one, not Oprah. Okay, so you switch the P and the R around, they're reversed. And they also met Orpah and Ruth, which is much easier to say. And this is our first glimpse of the person named in the title of the book, and one of only two females to have a book of the Bible named after her. Can you remember what the other one would be? That would be 
Esther, very good. Okay, the, the all-star class is here today. That's good. The story goes on to say that about 10 years after Elimelech died, not only did Elimelech die, both sons, Malin and Killian, passed away as well. We don't know how or why they died, but now Naomi and her two daughters-in-law were alone in Moab. The death of Elimelech and Naomi's two sons would have been tragic and heartbreaking for Naomi for sure. But think about the social and economic consequences of losing both your husband and your two sons. This would have made the situation much more dire. Naomi had lost her providers, her protectors, and her legal rights. She was a woman alone in a place where she was a foreigner. She was an outsider with no way to provide for herself in a culture that gave very little standing or opportunity to women at all. Naomi's situation looked hopeless. At this point in the story, Naomi decides, I better return to Judah, return to the homeland. By now the famine had passed and there's food in the land, so Naomi sets off for home with her Moabite daughters-in-law in tow. But along the way, Naomi has this moment of clarity. She realizes what she's about to do. She's about to take these young women to a completely new place, a place where they have no connections, a place they did not, where they would not be thought of very highly by the people because they were from Moab and did not treat them very well. So Naomi stops. She speaks to both women. She suggests to them that they go back. Let her go back to Judah alone, but they return to Moab. She said, go back to your family homes and seek another opportunity to marry. So here's what it says in Ruth 1, 11 to 13. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along, but it'll be on the screen. Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husband? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. This is the part I want you to get. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Can you hear Naomi's pain in the statement? Can you hear that? She is completely, totally undone. In her mind, God has not only abandoned her, but come against her. If we're really honest, there's probably a few people here. You see that phrase up there and you can relate to the statement. You feel like Naomi this morning, and maybe you're watching online, and you feel like that as well. Yet Naomi's gesture to the daughters is a very generous one. For in letting the daughters leave, they could return to the safety of their family. But Naomi now would be even more alone, more vulnerable. And it's easy to imagine the tension and the unease as Naomi said the words. What would they do? Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, thinks about the offer she slowly kisses Naomi goodbye. She decides to accept, and she sets off to return to her homeland. And now the camera pans to Ruth. What would she do? Naomi waits for the answer, and she's sure that she's going to be left alone. This would just be one more strike against her. Yet Ruth does something extraordinary, something completely unexpected. Ruth turns to Naomi, and she says what are probably the most quoted and recognizable verses in the entire book of Ruth. Here's what she says. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Wow. 
You probably have heard this maybe as part of a wedding ceremony. A lot of times people use this as part of their vows. A proclamation of love and marriage fitting for a marriage relationship. But this is an entirely different context. Totally different. Ruth is tying herself to a widowed mother-in-law, leaving her own family and homeland to become an alien in a strange land with nothing but uncertainty and very little hope for the future. And this, this is the moment we catch a glimpse of the fact that maybe God hadn't forgotten Naomi after all. So the two women, they travel back to Judah, back to Naomi's homeland, a little town called, wait for it, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yes, as in, oh, little town of Bethlehem, the same Bethlehem of the Christmas story. And this is the first clue as to why we're in the book of Ruth at the beginning of Advent. Now, can you imagine what it would be like for Naomi to come home after being gone for so long? People would be excited to see her. She'd been gone for somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years, maybe longer. But where was Elimelech? Where was her husband? Where were her two boys, Malin and Killian? And who, who's the Moabite woman with her? Imagine, Naomi would have to painfully recount in detail the story of her losses to everyone who asked over and over and over again. And if there's any doubt about Naomi's grief, it becomes blatantly obvious as she answers those who ask about her in chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Here's what she said. She says, don't call me Naomi. She responded instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Ouch. Have you ever felt like that? Have you known someone who's felt like that? Naomi is overwhelmed by her emptiness and suffering, and truthfully, sometimes we felt like that too. Sometimes we're Naomi, and sometimes we see Naomi's all around us. What about the couple that have tried for years and years to have a baby, whose hopes rise and fall with every negative pregnancy test? What about the family rocked by a person struggling with substance abuse, stuck in the cycle of addiction and powerless to help the person they love, but barely recognize anymore? What about the student that goes to, day, or to school every day alone only to be bullied, isolated, no end in sight, no one stepping in to help? Now maybe for you it's not that dramatic. Maybe it's simply just been a series of disappointments in your life, discouraging times, but it still hurts. We all, we all, we all need hope. Everyone needs hope. But sometimes, like Naomi, we accuse God of bringing us home empty. Sometimes we believe that God has made life bitter for us as well. God hasn't upheld his end of the bargain, if such a thing exists. But here's something I want you to remember today. Remember this. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes hope is less about what you can see and more about what God can do. Sometimes hope is less about what you can see and more about what God can do. When you're losing hope, when we're losing hope, often it has to do with being overwhelmed by our circumstance and the inability to see any light at the end of the tunnel. Just like Naomi, we can't see a way out because we're looking at the wrong things. Real hope isn't based on us. It's not based on our ability. 
Hope is based on God's faithfulness. Hope is based on his promise and on what he can do, on his power. Hope is less about what you can see and more about what God can do. So let's shift back for a second. We're going to go to the New Testament for just a minute, to the book of Romans, the book of Romans. And here the Apostle Paul is giving some direction to the church there about how hope works and where it comes from. I think this is important. So I want to look at Romans 15, verse 13. And here's what he says. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul reminds us, God is the source of hope. God is the source of hope. Notice that he doesn't say hope lies in our circumstance. It doesn't lie in our ability to solve our own problems. That's not where our hope comes from. It's not based on how much money we have. It's not based on what our future prospects look like. God is the source of hope. He is the only source of hope. Now, if you think about it, to me, that's good news. It's good news because it turns out that I'm not the source of my own hope, which is comforting. It's good news that the same one who created me, the same one who knows everything about me, the same one who tells me he always will love me is indeed the source of my hope today. And I think, I think that's good news for you too. God is the source of hope. But we forget. We forget sometimes. And I think Naomi forgot as well. I think she knew it, but she forgot. Naomi was so beaten down by loss, regret, and sadness that she forgot that God should be the source of her hope and not the source of her problems. Naomi had forgotten, but God hadn't forgotten her. God hasn't forgotten you. In Ruth chapter 2, Naomi's story continues with Ruth at her side now. No husbands, no sons. Naomi was forced to send Ruth into the fields behind the harvesters to glean for grain, to feed themselves, to stay alive. Now, if you haven't heard the story before, that might be a new word to you. You may never have heard of the word glean. But it actually refers to a command way back in the book of Leviticus, early in the Bible. In chapter 19, verse 9, where it says, to instruct the people that are harvesting to leave a small portion of the harvest behind so that the poor and those unable to support themselves would be provided for. It's a beautiful idea when you think about it. Making sure, God made sure, that the poor had a way to feed themselves and maintain their pride and their dignity. But as beautiful as that sounds, it's not really the place you want to be if you don't have to be. It's not an enviable position. The poor were often mistreated by the workers. Uh, They'd be insulted. Uh, They might be beaten, they might be chased off the fields, disrespected, and the work would be hard, it would be slow. It's not like you've got a full crop to choose from, you're basically finding what's left over. And unfortunately, now Ruth and Naomi are part of the reality. But one of my favorite moments in this whole story, Ruth 1-4, to and I would encourage you this week to go read it. It's not very long. It's a great story, but there's a small turn of phrase that's used in chapter 2, verse 3, that I think speaks to the fact that Naomi thought she was forgotten, but God hadn't forgotten her. And here's what it says. It says, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Here it is. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Did you catch it? As it happened. Or you could say, as it turned out, Or more literally, we might go, wouldn't you know it? Ruth goes out to glean for grain, completely dependent on the generosity and character of a stranger and landowner, and wouldn't you know, 
she ended up in the field of a relative of her father-in-law. Coincidence? I have a feeling that the author of the book had his tongue firmly in his cheek as he wrote the line. God leads Ruth to the field owned by a man named Boaz. Maybe this is the first time you've heard him, but this guy is wealthy. He's well-respected. He's righteous. He's eligible as a bachelor. And he already has a strong connection to Naomi's family. What are the chances? Have you ever noticed that when you're really seeking after God and his peace and joy in your life, that you start to notice more and more coincidences of his grace and his work in your life? Have you noticed that? You start noticing more, as it happens, moments in your own situation. Never, never, never underestimate what God is doing behind the scenes in your life right now. When you read through the rest of chapter 2, we find out that Boaz is kind, that Boaz is generous. He notices Ruth working in his field, and so he says to his workers, he says, hey, you make sure you're good to her. He says, make sure she has access to water. He even tells them to leave more grain behind than they're supposed to, just to make sure she gets what she needs. On top of that, he even buys her lunch, which is quite the, quite the statement. Ruth does not understand why she's being treated this way. She knows it's not supposed to work like this. She's a Moabite. She shouldn't get this kind of treatment. In verse 11 and 12, we hear the interaction between Ruth and Boaz as Ruth tries to figure out how this has happened. Here's what she said. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I am a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I know, I think Boaz is speaking for God at that point in time. And I want to say to some of you, I want to say to some of you that have working behind the scenes, God sees it all. God sees, I know what you've done. I know what you've left behind. I know what you've given up. I know what it's cost you. I've seen what you've done. Can you imagine? Imagine the sigh of relief for Ruth as she hears the words. Suddenly there was hope where there was none before. Everyone, everyone, everyone needs hope. Ruth included. And God is the source of the hope. When Ruth goes back to Naomi at the end of the first day, she has enough grain Not just a little bit like Naomi was expected, but she has a whole basket. And Naomi is shocked and she's overjoyed and even more so as Ruth describes the events of the day and how Boaz has treated her with grace and generosity. And as you read through the rest of the second chapter, you can hear hope springing to life in Naomi as she begins to recognize that God is still at work in their situation. You see, sometimes hope arrives when we realize that God never left. Sometimes hope arrives when we realize that God has never left. Sometimes hope arrives when we realize that he never left. Hope shows up. Not because he left, because we become aware. This was true for Naomi. God has always and was always aware and involved in her situation, but it wasn't until Naomi realized that he was still there that that's when her hope came back to life. If you're lacking in hope today, consider asking God to show you this. Ask him to show you how he hasn't left you. Ask him to show you how he hasn't left you despite what your circumstances in front of you might say. He will. 
Naomi tells Ruth to continue working in Boaz's field until the end of harvest. And she says, okay, let's accept this provision from God. Sometime later, the story picks up again. And now Naomi is ready to try and move things along. Boaz's kindness has provided for Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi is now full of that confident faith that Paul talked about. Right? She's transformed. Now she's got confidence. So she decides to act. Naomi decides to play Cupid. In chapter 3, interesting story. And you have to read this because it's just, it's even hard to sort of get your head around. I'll just give you a little bit now. Naomi tells Ruth to get dressed up and to sneak into the area where the men were threshing grain. And that to find Boaz that night as he slept and then to sleep at his feet until he wakes up and tells her what to do. Now, to us, that sounds like a crazy plan. I'm not sure if Naomi was totally thinking correctly. In fact, it might even sound improper and something we wouldn't expect them to do, but apparently this was an act of submission in the time. And in doing this, Naomi was appealing to Boaz and his sense of duty and to his kindness and to his role as a family member, specifically something called a family redeemer, which may have, you may have heard about if you studied this book before. But we'll get back to that in a second. So just like Naomi suggested, Boaz wakes up, Ruth is there at his feet, and Boaz, a righteous man, is clearly moved by Ruth's act of submission. And on the spot, he promises to marry Ruth. The only problem is, and there's always a problem, this is the dun-dun-dun. It turns out, Boaz like, I would marry you, but it turns out there's a closer relative that has sort of the first right of refusal in this idea of the family redeemer. So in Jewish tradition, when land had to be sold because of debts or hard times, the closest family member had the right to buy the land and all the possessions to keep them in the family so that the property would remain in the family until the times improved. That was what they had set up. And the person that could do that was known as the family redeemer or the kinsman redeemer because they would redeem the land and redeem the possessions. In chapter 4, Boaz... Now Boaz is clearly on the move. He is, he's got a plan. So Boaz meets with this closest relative who agrees. He's like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll buy Naomi's land and her possessions. But then Boaz reminds him, oh, one more thing I forgot to mention. Um, when you purchase the land and all the possessions, you also will need to marry the Moabite woman that, that Naomi's brought back. And you can imagine the relative is like, uh, 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 yeah, I don't really want to buy the land. So the relative refuses, and suddenly, guess who is in position to marry Ruth? Boaz. Now, if you read the story, interesting thing, you'll even hear that they sealed the deal between the two relatives by exchanging sandals, which was the tradition of the sign or of the time. Who knew that a Birkenstock could be that meaningful? Anyways, all sandals aside, remember this. Boaz acted as a family redeemer, stepping in for those who no one else would redeem. Does that remind you of anybody? Boaz acted as a family redeemer, stepping in for those no one else would or could redeem. Jesus did the same thing for us, but he did it to the point, it didn't just cost him money, it cost him his life. Jesus redeemed those that could not be redeemed. He redeemed us. Jesus is our family redeemer. In the same way that Boaz was a family redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. The book of Ruth ends with Naomi holding now, time passes, a brand new grandson. 
Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz. That's how the book ends. The scene is almost idyllic. It's almost like the Hallmark movie at the very end when everything wraps up in the, first, the last 10 minutes. You've seen that? I've watched a lot of them in the last couple months. But now we have Naomi, and Naomi is a proud grandmother. She is beaming. She's surrounded by her friends, surrounded by her family, and she is blissfully aware that God had indeed never left her. And here's what her friends say to Naomi in Ruth 4, verse 14 and 15. I think this is prophetic. Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Isn't that an incredible story? Everyone needs hope. God is the source of that hope. And I think we find in the story of Ruth an incredibly persuasive attempt to prove that God is in the business of restoring hope to his people. We find that God is at work redeeming the circumstances of our lives to bring us into the full covering of his family. Because amazing as this story is on its own, there's still something that I haven't even told you that's even more incredible, more to the point, more to be found, something that speaks to God's plan, not just for that family, but for all humanity and specifically for us at the Christmas season. Look at Matthew 1. And in Matthew 1, you're going to find a long list of names. And if you've ever read the Christmas story before, it's probably the part you skip over as you're trying to get to the actual, you know, the shepherds and the angels and stuff. But it's really important because it's the genealogy of Jesus, the generations of men and women that form the line of descendants that would one day lead to the birth of Jesus. You scroll through the list until you get to verse 5. Here's what verse 5 says. Verse 5 says, Salmon was the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. You might recognize that name. I know you'll recognize the next. Jesse was the father of King David. Here in the genealogy of Jesus, we find Boaz and, and his Moabite wife, Ruth, grafted into the family line of King David, grafted into the family line of the king of kings, Jesus. Naomi was not forgotten. Naomi was included. Naomi was not abandoned. Naomi had a part to play in the plan. Hope arrived for Naomi when she realized that God had never left. As we head into the Advent season, as we move through the sermon series, The Gift of Hope, I want you to remember that Jesus came to earth as a man, born as a tiny baby. He came to be our family redeemer. He came to be the fullest expression of the Boaz figure in our story, in your story, in my story. This season marks the beginning of the plan put in place that would ultimately lead to you and me and everyone watching being grafted into his genealogy. Our hope arrived when he came so very close to us, God as man. Worship team, why don't you come up? And I'll ask you to start to play. This Advent season, I'm praying. Here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you'll experience the kind of confident hope that Paul talked about in Romans. I'm praying that we'll be a church full of that. And if you're facing a difficult holiday season with some personal or family circumstance where you're having a hard time finding hope, 
Remember, God alone is your source. God alone, not you, not your plans. You can't muster it. You can't manufacture it yourself. He is our hope, period. He is our hope, period. Remind yourself that your hope is less about what you can see. It's more about what can God can do. It's less about what you see and more about what can, he can do. And even when you don't feel like it, spend time in his word. Read the stories of God's faithfulness and provision for his people. Maybe this week, like I said, read through the book of Ruth and ask God to show you how your story parallels the same one. Remember to focus on what God can do and not on what you can see. Remind yourself that God has not left you and pray that God would allow hope to arrive in your life again. But perhaps you're here today, you're not struggling with hope. You're in a good place. Don't apologize for that. That's good. God is good. But maybe today, and I think this might be why you're here, maybe today God is calling you to act as a Boaz for someone else. An extended family redeemer to step in and provide hope for another as you show love and generosity. Maybe just in a small way. I'm challenging you this week. I'm challenging you to find three people. Three people that you could reach out to in some way to act in this way. Maybe it could be a simple act of inclusion to somebody who's left out. Having them join your conversation. Sitting down with them in the lunchroom. Maybe it's a gift of generosity this week to someone who has a financial need, who has no hope and has no idea how that bill will be paid. Maybe it's offering a word of encouragement to a friend or colleague that's wrestling with despair or hopelessness. You could walk by, you could leave it alone, you could do your job, nobody would ever question you, but you stop, you take a minute, you give a word of encouragement. I'm there if you need it. Everyone needs hope. Everyone needs hope. And I believe God is calling us to participate in his plan to bring hope to those who need it. Now we're going to sing one last song in a second. It's called Living Hope. You know that one, I'm pretty sure. And while we sing today, I'd encourage you to ask God what he would have you do with what you've heard. I would love for this Christmas, this Christmas, not the next one, not one after that. I would love for this Christmas to be a season full of confident hope that only God can give. And I believe today is a breakthrough day for you here and for those of you at home. Today's a breakthrough day. Maybe you want to stand in the gap today and pray for someone else. Maybe somebody's come to mind right off the bat. You just picture them. You think, oh, the last time I saw them just looked hopeless and despairing. Maybe God today is bringing them to mind for you because he wants you to pray for them, to stand in the gap and to be that person that helps them when they're struggling. Maybe you simply want to offer yourself today, say, Lord, nobody's coming to mind today and I certainly, I don't feel hopeless, but all I'm doing is I'm putting myself in a position of offering myself to you to participate in your plan and to do the very things that you call me to do. Would you equip me, Lord, to do that? Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. I believe that this is a breakthrough day. I believe this is a day when God shows us that everyone needs hope and then he equips us to give it to those around us.